0: It was February 3rd, 2008. Larry Little was at home in Miami, Florida, and he was worried.
1: I was very, very nervous.
0: Little had just settled in to watch Tom Brady lead the undefeated New England Patriots against the underdog New York Giants in the Super Bowl. It had been years since Larry Little was this anxious watching a football game. Tell me about it. But this Super Bowl was different. Little's place in NFL history was on the line.
1: I was wishing and hoping the Giants would find a way to win the game, that's for sure. When it got down to the last few minutes, I was very nervous.
0: See, Larry Little played offensive guard for the 1972 Miami Dolphins, the only team in NFL history to have a perfect season all wins, zero losses, and a Super Bowl trophy.
2: 17
0: and 0, absolute perfection. When I say 17 and 0, it's not about the 17, it's about the 0. But in 2007, Brady and the Pats were poised to join the 72 Dolphins in Perfectville. Let's do a quick reset here. Between 2001 and 2005, my Pats had won three Super Bowls. Tom fucking Brady was in full hero mode for me and everyone else in New England. The dynasty was cemented. But then, we didn't win the two following years. 2006 was particularly painful. That season ended with a loss to arch rival Peyton Manning and the Colts in the AFC Championship. We were up 21-3 at halftime and lost. So as a result, the Pats went full annihilation mode, stacking the roster with talent, and then stacking wins from start to finish of the 2007 season. And it was fucking awesome. 18-0 leading into the Super Bowl. Perfection was within our grasp. A feat only done once until...
2: Giants win it this time, 17-14.
0: Tom Brady, you can't get your fourth ring, but... And goddammit. It remained a feat only done once. I'm Gotham Chopra from Religion of Sports and ESPN Plus. This is Man in the Arena, the ten-part companion podcast to the docu-series of the same name. Here, we're looking at Tom Brady through the eyes of players and coaches, fans and haters, people whose dreams he's either ruined or made come true, including me. Each episode looks at Tom's impact inside and outside the arena. Using sports to explore bigger questions about the world and ourselves. Three, two, one, let's go. This episode, perfection. How do we define it in sports and in life? Back in 2007, who really achieved it? That's coming up after the break. Welcome back. We're looking back at the 2007 season when Tom and the Pats were almost perfect. But what do we mean when we say that something's perfect? To find out, we talked with Gordon Flett, a psychology professor at Toronto's York University,
3: where he studies the very concept of perfection. Perfect is without any particular flaw, both objectively and subjectively. So absolutely, without mistake, flawless. For some people, Flett says the quest for flawlessness is actually a matter of life or death. Certain professions call for perfectionism. You can think, of course, of a surgeon, lawyers, engineers, doctors, nurses. You know, there's a long list of famous perfectionists. I'm not going to call anyone out here. Slet can do that for me. I think of Bruce Springsteen as someone who's an extreme perfectionist and is always working obsessively and has the concerts that go three and four hours. Glenn Gould, the famous Pianist, he stopped performing because he said that only in the studio could he replicate the perfection that he was striving for.
0: All of those people Fletch just named clearly have landed on how they define perfect. But it's personal. They aren't being objectively measured by anybody. In a lot of sports, though, it's pretty clear-cut. Perfection is a number. You can measure it. In bowling, it's a score of 300. Same in archery. Even baseball has its version of flawless, the perfect game. No walks, no hits, no runs, no errors. There have only been 23 perfect games in baseball history. And in some sports, it seems like perfection is so difficult that no one really even thinks it's actually achievable. Until it is.
1: And now here is Nadia Komanici on the uneven bars.
0: At the Summer Olympics in 1976, Romanian gymnast Nadia Comanec, and by the way, that is how you say it, we fact-checked this, her score was perfect.
3: I wouldn't be surprised if she got a 10.
0: The scoreboards? Not so much. The scoreboard was not equipped to flash a 10-0. That's Olympics gymnastics judge Cheryl Hamilton, who remembers watching Comanec on TV.
4: So they had to flash a 1.0. <laughs>
3: Watch that computer readout on the scores. It was not set up prior to the competition because they thought a 10 was impossible.
0: But probably even rarer than a perfect 10 in gymnastics or any of the other perfect sport achievements I've mentioned is the perfect NFL season. Our perfection expert, Gordon Flett, he still remembers the 72 Dolphins.
3: Yeah, I I was old enough to remember that. I think uh, around 15 years old then. That team was unbeatable. They are close as you're going to get to perfect. So that that team established a standard. But that standard has been
0: impossible to repeat. Every so often, there'll be a football team that looks like it's going to come close before they're knocked off. Most recently, the 2015 Panthers made it to 14-0 before losing their second-to-last regular season game. And of course, my paths came so close in 2007. Sports are full of these sorts of stories. The crazy comebacks or full-on David versus Goliaths. And yet, each of them still feels sort of objectively unbelievable. And the idea that the giants of all teams, the fucking giants, would be the ones to end our season with a gut punch, I still have trouble believing it. In the docu-series, we have Michael Strahan, a Hall of Fame defensive end from that Giants team, talk about that season. I came away from that conversation with a few more bruises. And then we do this podcast, and here comes former Giants offensive coach Kevin Gilbride to land even more body blows. He told us that at the start of the 2007 season, the Giants' goal was simply to keep their jobs. The pressure had
4: been laid squarely at our feet that if we did not not only make the playoffs again but this time win a game in the playoffs that we were going to be let go.
2: Yeah back then the Giants were not great. I sort of set myself up as I do for every Giants season and try to curb my expectations. That's Dan Nastasi. He's one of the hosts of Big Blue United, a New York
0: Giants podcast. Dan is a lifelong fan. And in 2007,
2: he'd endured years of mediocrity and
0: was ready for another helping.
2: Best case scenario, maybe a 500 record, go 8-8. Eight and eight. I thought that'd be great. Maybe if things are, are wildly successful, you can sneak into the playoffs and, and have a, a graceful bow out in the first round. And to make things worse, Dan was a senior at the University of Vermont, in the heart of New England. So every day, even if it wasn't a game day... Everyone, guys, girls, were wearing jerseys, Patriots jerseys. The most ubiquitous being the Tom Brady jersey. So they weren't shy about exclaiming the greatness of Boston sports.
0: The New England Patriots were racking up lopsided wins against almost every team they played. 38-14 versus the Jets. Taking the Dolphins down with a score of 49-28. Pummeling Washington 52-7. These weren't grinded out games. These were high scoring, kick-ass blowouts. It was full-on Patriot swagger, and I loved every second of it. Gordon Flett says that this is actually an aspect of
3: perfectionism. It's not just that you win, it's how you win. So an extreme perfectionist is somebody who wants to achieve the ultimate, but also they want to do it in a way that they seem almost effortless about it. Of course, for the Patriots, for anyone, it's not without effort. And there's the secret because sometimes these people will project this image of being absolutely effortless, but in fact, they have put in the thousands of hours behind closed doors so that no one realizes how much effort or how much work was put into it. Even if we weren't privy to the behind the scenes work,
0: Pats fans like me saw the results, especially in the passing attack between Tom and his receivers. If Randy Moss was the Adonis-like God of catching the deep ball, Wes Welker was the opposite, undersized, quick, always making tough catches across the middle of the field, taking big hits, but getting up every single time. Together, that trio, Randy, Tom, Wes, they were unstoppable. Even Dan Nastasi, the Giants fan, had to admit it.
2: The Patriots were so good and so much better. If you go back and you watch those games, they just, it was like a hot knife through butter, the way they just destroyed everyone. Like, logically, you couldn't think of a team that could beat them but there's something in your heart as, like, believing in all things good that, like, God wouldn't allow them to have that perfect season.
0: Ah, yes. And the turning point may have happened earlier than you think. The Giants and the Pats met in the final game of the regular season. And a lot of the time, that final game, it's kind of meaningless. Teams are either already eliminated from the postseason, or they already know their playoff seedings. It's usually a time to rest your starters. Let them heal from their injuries. Sometimes these games are kind of fun, with coaches trying some trick plays or wacky maneuvers with nothing really to lose. On paper, the 2007 season finale between the Pats and the Giants met all of those requirements. No matter who won or lost, the Patriots were gonna be the top seed in the AFC and the Giants the fifth in the NFC. In any other year, the teams would probably take the game easy and rest up for the playoff run, with nothing really at stake. But in this game, something was at stake. And not just for the team, for all of us, the fans as well. It wasn't just the idea of perfection. If you were like me, 30-ish at the time, you'd grown up losing. Yeah, we'd had an amazing success since 2001, but the perfect season would feel like full-on payback for all that suffering during our childhood. It was redemption. At least, that's the way I saw it and not just me. Here's journalist Mike Reese, who's covered the Patriots for years.
5: In Boston, the game was going to be aired on NFL Network. And I remember there was concern that not enough people had the network to watch this potential moment in history that our Senator John Kerry got involved.
0: Yep. Then Senator Kerry called it in historic event. He even sent a letter to both the NFL and the cable companies telling them basically, we got to find a way to put this game on regular television
5: so people can watch it.
0: Kerry even threatened to hold a Senate hearing. Whatever he did, it worked. And the game was broadcast on national TV. The only question was, would the Pats go all out for the sake of perfection? That's after the break.
4: The hardest part is, is making the players feel that that's important to go undefeated, because our whole
0: goal was to win a Super Bowl. That's the late Don Shula, the head coach of the undefeated 72 Miami Dolphins team. He's talking about the tension between winning the big one versus winning them all.
4: And if we'd have lost one along the way and still won a Super Bowl, we would have accomplished our goal. But when we found out we could do something that no other team had done, that became important And that's when I tried to make the players feel that that was important also along with winning the Super Bowl.
0: But the Patriots players needed no convincing. A bunch of the guys we talked to in the video series, including Tom, admit now that going undefeated was definitely on their minds before that last game. Of course, they were publicly saying all of that shit about just focusing on one game at a time, keeping their eyes on the big prize. But their places in history were on the line and it wasn't enough to have an excellent regular season. They wanted a perfect regular season. There's a big difference.
3: Excellence is not good enough for the extreme perfectionist. They have to be absolutely perfect. Professor Gordon fled again. And and some of the more frustrated people who are ones who have done beyond belief in terms of excellence, but still not getting that extra bit that makes it absolutely perfect. So the student who gets a 99, as opposed to 100, for, for example. So the Pats would
0: end up playing all their starters. For the Patriots, this was risky. Tom or some other starter could have been hurt. And the Pats team philosophy is usually very pragmatic. Think big picture. But this wasn't just any season. But what about the Giants? They played all their starters too. Quarterback Eli Manning and everyone else. Why? We
4: asked Coach Gilbride. We went into that last game not really worrying one way or another, except that we would derive great pleasure if we
0: could be the spoilers. Ah, yes. Spoilers. You see, there's a flip side to the pursuit of perfection. A lot of people don't want to see it happen.
3: Funny thing about fans, you see this, I think, when somebody's pitching a no-hitter or a perfect game in baseball. There's a subset of fans who say, hey, wait a minute. I'm here for something that's remarkable. I might see somebody pitch a perfect game or, or a no-hitter. And then there's the long-standing fans who don't care. Their team is being embarrassed by some visiting pitcher and they want to see that person fall flat on their face. Dan Nastasi,
0: the Giants fan, says the Giants made for great spoilers because of their
2: imperfections. They were a bit of a ragtag team. They had... You know, an old guy as their uh, defensive leader, Mike Strahan, and sort of a doofus as a quarterback. To me, it, it, there's a lot of comedic elements to it when you match him up against the Patriots and the, the evil mastermind of Bill Belichick and the handsome cornball Tom Brady at quarterback. Finally, it was
5: game time. Again, Mike Reese. And the opening kickoff happens. I remember flashbulbs, like the cameras, and saying to myself, that doesn't happen unless it's a Super Bowl. Like, people were capturing the moment the game started because they knew it was a historic night.
0: And as the game went on, it became clear that the Giants had a real shot. They scored first and they had the lead in the fourth quarter.
4: Any thoughts of sitting down starters truly evaporated and it was really going to be a fight to the very end.
0: Looking back, it was probably the closest game we'd been in all year. But still, we pulled it out. And yes, I'm saying we. Because by that point of that season, that's how it felt. After the game, Tom and the Pats and all of us, we were perfect. 16-0. 0 but did the winning come at a price? Did that game give the Giants a much needed boost for the postseason? Here's Gordon Flett.
3: Teams and individuals have a great need to validate themselves. They want to prove themselves. So a team that has lost seven games and is barely above 500, this is a great way to say, well, yeah, but you know, now look at us, look where we are now, sort of getting a clean slate and saying we are a much better team than what our record shows. We've an- analyzed whether that loss
4: was maybe the most important factor or catalyst in us feeling that, We got a chance to win this thing. Former Giants coach Kevin Gilbride again. Because we kind of came away not devastated by the loss, as disappointed as we were, we kind of offset that with the feeling like if that's the best there is in the league, we're as good as them. We don't have to worry about anybody else. If they're the best, we just prove we can go toe-to-toe with the Patriots. So why would we be worried about anybody else? Why can't we
0: run the table? right? Why couldn't they? The Giants hung tough, forcing the Pats to eke out a win. They faced the best of the NFL and carried a sort of fearless momentum into the Super Bowl for a rematch with my guys. Meanwhile, for the Pats, it felt like this was the fifth or sixth Super Bowl they'd played in that season. It wasn't just the finale against the Giants that felt historic. Nearly every team they'd played that year had given the Pats their best shot. Everyone wanted to be the team that ended the undefeated season. That's Mike Reese again.
5: I think for the Patriots, they were fatigued. The pressure of week after week, taking every team's best shot. By the time they got to the Super Bowl, they were just hoping they had enough left in the tank. And I remember having a moment with owner Robert Kraft before the game and him expressing how nervous he was.
0: Think of it like building a house of cards. If the first few cards fall down, no big deal. You didn't invest that much. But if you stack a few layers, then a few more, and you get closer and closer to achieving something perfect, you almost can't breathe. There's so much to lose. Gordon Flett says this kind of pressure is common for people who are pursuing perfection. It's
3: imposed pressure. You are expected by society or particular other people, your boss or whoever, to be perfect. Because once you're successful, the hallmark of this is the idea, well, now that I've done this, now the standard is being raised in terms of other people's expectancies. The better you do, the better you're expected to do. Flood says that if you keep pushing yourself and pushing yourself over the edge, then yeah, you might just run out of juice. One of the things about perfectionism that is well-established is that it's linked with burnout. So you can push people and push people. There's a point at which some people will never be able to overcome the sheer physical and mental exhaustion. As a fan just watching the Super Bowl that year,
0: even I felt the weight of expectations and mental exhaustion. I remember trash-talking some of my Giants fan friends beforehand. They were so confident they weren't building a house of cards. If they lost, so what? Everyone expected them to lose anyway, no big deal. But if they won, I was tense and they were just so loose. Just happy to be there, playing with the house of money. Assholes.
4: Welcome to Arizona,
1: where the Patriots are in the neighborhood of the
2: 1970s. <laughs>
0: Seemed like the only nervous Giants fan was down in Miami. Larry Little, the Dolphins player we heard from at the start of this episode. The one who wanted to see the Pats take an L.
1: I wouldn't say I was rooting for them to lose, but I was hoping they would lose. I put it that way. (laughs) Because, you know, that record to us is very sacred.
0: That record is very sacred. And as Larry watched the Super Bowl, he started to wonder if he'd have to share that sacred honor with the Patriots.
1: But I didn't know it would take a miracle for the Giants to win that football game the way it did, but it got down to the last few minutes.
0: Ah, yes. The miracle. Or whatever the fucking opposite of a miracle is. Eli Manning somehow eluded the Pats' defense and threw a pass that receiver David Tyree somehow caught on his helmet. You know what I'm talking about. And then, a few plays later... You kind of saw
4: Eli just get it out there kind of in a floating arc out to Plexico and he just kind of cradled it in his chest waist and that was the go-ahead touchdown.
0: The final score was 17-14. to Giants win. It was over. Perfection gone. The Dolphins remained alone.
3: Last night staggered by the Giants. One win from historic perfection. And now, left to
0: somehow make sense of it all. So the 07 Patriots and the 72 Dolphins do share one thing. Since the NFL and AFL merged in 1966, they're the only teams to have a perfect regular season.
3: No other team has replicated that achievement. Big whoop. The season for football players includes the playoff and the Super Bowl. So if you do not win the Super Bowl, you do not have a perfect season and in fact you may have your most frustrating season because you made it all that way and a team that was a wild card team beat you in the biggest spectacle in sports around the world. So not a perfect season, unfortunately. Today, for NFL teams
0: trying to have a perfect season, there's some bad news. It's getting harder. In 1972, when Larry Little was playing football with the Dolphins, the regular season was 14 games. In 1978, the NFL added two more. And now for the 2021 season, there's 17 games before the playoffs. And that's another one of the frustrating elements of the entire concept of perfection. Just when you think you know what you're aiming for, it changes.
3: What used to be the standard is now shifted so that people are now breaking records that, you know, didn't even get considered back when the original record was set. So it's, it's a shifting standard all the time and, and very elusive. The NFL isn't
0: the only sporting body to change the goalposts, so to speak. Remember gymnast Nadia Comaneci and her perfect tens? If she competed today, we might not remember her as a top scorer. Cheryl Hamilton, the Olympic judge from the beginning of this episode, says it's a lot more complicated now. There's a new scoring system, and judges take into account difficulty and artistry.
4: I know that there's subjectivity involved, and I just try to be as black and white as I possibly can. But, I mean, we have artistry, and that's—artistry of a routine is in the eye of the beholder, you know? So that's subjective.
0: That's another thing that's so hard about achieving perfection. It's often in the eye of the beholder. So my definition of perfect,
3: it's probably gonna be different than yours. Here's Gordon Flett. I would say perfectionism can be looked at as on a spectrum. An important thing about perfectionism, everybody talks about perfectionists as of like you either are or you aren't, but within the group of perfectionists, there's different levels of perfectionism. And there are some people at the extreme end, looking at it as a dimensional thing where they have to be perfect at the utmost level all the time versus others who are more moderate and, and will learn to pick their spots. Larry Little
0: seems he's at one extreme almost 50 years later. Even knowing that he'll always have his perfect season, Little is still haunted by the Dolphins' Super Bowl against Washington. He thinks it could have been more perfect.
1: It should have been the only shutout in Super Bowl history. Our kicker hit the ball up in the air and one of their guys picked it up and ran into the end zone for the touchdown. Our defense didn't give up a touchdown in that game.
0: What about the 2007 Giants? Where did they land on the perfection spectrum?
2: The Giants winning that game was so perfect. That's Giants fan Dan Nastasi. The Giants played hard football that they hadn't seen before, so there was a lot of interesting wrinkles along the way, but they were the perfect foil for this malevolent juggernaut that, in my eyes, was the Patriots and, uh, and their quest for perfection, which I, I really didn't care for. I don't know that we were perfect.
4: And that's Gilbride. But we were as determined and bulldogish of group as i think i'd been around they were of a mindset that you are always trying to get to as coaches and creating with your team that ability just not to get too high or get too low and just stay within the moment within the present play that
0: play and then worry about the next play the next play so now what about tom brady In earlier episodes, I've shared the dirty little secret. He's not actually perfect, he's human. But former Dolphin, Larry Little, Mr. Perfect, has this to say about number 12.
1: I think he's the best quarterback to ever play the game.
0: The best quarterback ever. Not the perfect quarterback, just the best one. Whether or not you agree with Little, I think what makes people say this about Tom is that he's trying to be
3: perfect or at least always trying to be better. Again, Gordon Flett. Is Tom Brady a perfect athlete? Well, no one is perfect, so I would have to say no. But uh, I know a big thing with him is always improving. There's always something more to strive for. And in fact, that would probably be very boring for an athlete to say, okay, I've, I've done it. You know, then it's time to quit. Let's go back to that regular season finale
0: against the Giants. After the Pats won, Giants coach Kevin Gilbride remembers sprinting off the field. He just wanted to get away from everyone and everything. But in the tunnel, he came face-to-face with Tom. And he spotted me and came, you know,
4: over immediately, you know, just really bubbling with enthusiasm and excitement, as he should have been, because it was a phenomenal game. He was able to pull out the win at the end. They were able to preserve their undefeated season— But what I thought was incredible is rather than talk about any of those things, he just talked about what we had done against the Patriots' defense in the red zone. And he wanted to
0: ask me about those plays. This story is pure Tom Brady. Even with a win, even with a perfect regular season, he always has his eye on his next perfect throw. One more Super Bowl win. One more crack at perfection.
4: He's all football. It's always about what's next. What can we do to improve or expand upon what we're doing to make us even better, more effective? I thought it was an incredible statement about what made the guy as good as he is.
0: During that season, when Tom was perfect, almost perfect, on the field, he had a lot going on off the field, too. His first kid was born. He also met his future wife, Giselle Bunchan. So much to figure out. You know what, I can sort of relate. I had my first and only kid that year too. And as a new dad, I was trying to be the perfect parent, the perfect husband. But then in the middle of the night, when you can't get your newborn to stop crying no matter what you do, you realize very quickly that you're not going to be perfect at this because no one is. So while I didn't learn it on the football field, I do know now what Tom already knew when he approached Gilbride in the tunnel after the final game of the 2007 season. There's no such thing as perfect, whether you win them all or you don't. Man in the Arena is a Religion of Sports production in partnership with ESPN+. I'm Gotham Chopra, the host and creator. Our senior producers are Isaac Kestenbaum and Josephine Holtzman of Future Projects. This episode was produced by Buffy Gorilla. Our story editor is Michael Garofalo. Executive producers are Amit Sunkran and Adam Schlossman. Associate producers Iggy Monda and Megan Coyle. Fact-checking by Jane Ackerman. This episode was mixed by Merit Jacob and for ESPN Plus, Brian Lockhart, Senior Vice President, Original Content and ESPN Films, Lindsay Raveno, Executive Producer, ESPN Plus Originals, Tori Champagne, Producer, ESPN Plus Originals, Julia Lowry Henderson, Senior Editorial Producer, Riley Bloom, production assistant. Lastly, special thanks to Jessica Popovac, Steve Nelson, Carly Peruccio, composer Michael Kramer, PRX, and Roe Home Productions.